This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey guys, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I will be your ruggedly handsome host this week as we dive into a new topic. Now, I have to start out by apologizing for this topic being late. I actually had a different topic on tap this week. We were going to do a special episode, kind of a spotlight episode on a different people group in the world. But because there was some big news over the weekend uh, regarding terrorism, which, as you guys know, is one of my favorite topics to talk about, I thought we should kind of preempt that episode and do a brand new one. And so this episode took a little bit longer to record and I was a little bit late getting it out. So I apologize for being late, but I do think it's going to be a really good episode for us to to talk about and uh, really fascinating. And then next week we'll jump back on schedule with my spotlight on the people group. Uh, So let's go ahead and dive in this week. Uh, We're going to be talking about the probably biggest news story in terrorism in quite a while with the reported death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Now, the way this episode is going to work is before the commercial break for the first 10 to 15 minutes or so, we're going to talk about Baghdadi himself, kind of where he came from, who he is, what his role was within the organization, what impact did he have on uh, the region and the world. And then after the commercial break, we're going to talk about his death, kind of what happened there, uh, the aftermath of that, both kind of domestically here in the United States with some of the political implications, but also globally with what it means for the war on terror and ISIS going forward. Uh, So let's go ahead and jump into Baghdadi himself. Uh, So Baghdadi was uh, Iraqi born. He was the leader of the terrorist group known as the Islamic State or the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, which is ISIL, or the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, which is ISIS, several other names that's been known over the course of the years. I've actually done a spotlight episode on ISIS before on this podcast. So if you're really interested in that, jump back and try to find that episode. It's been been a little while since I did it, but I think it was really fascinating. It's one of the more fascinating terrorist groups that's ever existed. And so he actually was the leader of this group and had been since 2014. He was chosen to be the caliph of ISIS or ISIL, uh, Caliph being a person who's considered a kind of a political slash religious kind of a, a joint thing, successor to the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Uh, and so he is considered kind of the leader of the entire Muslim community, at least to certain people. And so the Islamic State at kind of their core goal was to create a caliphate, basically trying to develop some sort of empire, essentially. And so these these caliphates were ruled by caliphs. And so uh, this particular caliph was Baghdadi. And because of that, he is seen as the rightful successor to Muhammad by his followers. Now, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is actually not his real name. Uh, he this is kind of a, a, um, a pseudonym of sorts, a nom de guerre. He was actually born Ibrahim al-Wad Ibrahim al-Badri al-Samari, and he was born in 1971. So he had, so he was about 48 years old. 
Now, he chose the name Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, himself, and it's reported there's a couple different reasons that people suspect he chose this particular name. Uh, first is that the original caliph after Muhammad was a man by the name of Abu Bakr, and so it's thought that he kind of adopted that name because of his relationship to Muhammad and being the very first caliph. And if you go back in, in history, Abu Bakr was the kind of the replacement for Muhammad whenever Muhammad wasn't feeling well or was suffering from some sort of illness or something. Abu Bakr was the one who kind of led the prayer, uh, particularly in the, the Sunni tradition of Islam. The Shias actually believe something a little differently. But uh, in the Sunni tradition, Abu Bakr was that first caliph and the replacement for Muhammad. And so it's thought al-Baghdadi took over that uh, name because of that. Now his surname, al-Baghdadi, literally just means from Baghdad. Uh, so it basically says that he is he's from the Baghdad region of Iraq. So he took the name Abu Bakir, uh, which actually literally means uh, father of Bakir, and then al-Baghdadi, meaning that he is from Baghdad. So this was not his original name growing up, but he did adopt this name. And so he was born, as his name would suggest, in Iraq, uh, actually a town called Samara, which is not too far from Baghdad. And he was part of a specific tribal group called the Abu Badri tribe. Now, this tribe is, is a mix of a lot of different things, but he ultimately claims that he is descended from the Quraysh tribe, which is directly from Muhammad. And there's not a whole lot of evidence that we have to back that up, but he claims that this particular uh, Quraysh tribe, which is part of the Abu Badri tribe, directly links him to Muhammad, which gives him that uh, relationship to the line of caliphs. Now, he was not a particularly good student growing up. Uh, his high school grades were not good enough for him to get into the law school or the, the version of law school that they have at the University of Baghdad. Uh, he wanted to get into law and education and, and languages, and he wasn't good enough uh, grade-wise for that. So instead, he attended the Islamic University of Baghdad, which is now called Iraqi University, and studied Islamic law instead, uh, which basically translates to him studying the Quran and becoming very well-versed in this religious text of Islam. And it is thought from a very early age, he was considered kind of very devoted to the faith. Uh, even a lot of his early Islamic teachers talk about how he would memorize verses and just how, quote unquote, religious he was. And so focused on that to the point where he would even, as he got a little bit older, start to chastise his leaders and his imams in the mosque who he thought were doing things that uh, looked bad to the faith. In particular, there's a story of one who uh, smoked cigarettes and he thought that was that was terrible and anti-Islamic. And so he actually publicly would chastise his imam for this. Uh, he also would do this for other students and things who he thought were kind of stepping out of line. So from a very early age, he was very focused on on religion, but particularly the, um, the strict interpretations and the religious adherence to, to laws was a very big focus of him. Uh, now, he was also kind of shy, and so this kind of ties into him being uh, very focused on reading and studying religious texts. He was not big into the social scene or, or any sort of those things. Uh, and so there's not a whole lot that we know about him. Uh, he was very quiet, spent a lot of time alone. And in fact, some people who know him from you know long before he became famous saw him as being very unimpressive, kind of, I don't know what the right word is here, insignificant was, was a quote that was given. But this actually ended up playing into his his mythos as, as he got older because 
by kind of being so quiet and off the radar, he was almost able to create kind of a secret persona of sorts, which really enhanced his own prestige within the group. It attracted a lot of young people because of kind of the mystery of who this guy is and where he came from, uh, because he was largely unrecognized and all of a sudden kind of came out of nowhere. Now, it is pretty well understood that he was radicalized during the time of Saddam Hussein, he was kind of a revolutionary during this time period. You will hear some people talk about him as, oh, he, he was only radicalized when he was in prison uh, at the U.S. Camp Buka. Uh, and this is this was a, a basically an internment camp or a prison camp or detention facility that was run by the U.S. military in Iraq back in like the mid-2000s or so. And a lot of terrorist leaders actually ended up being held in this camp. And so... Uh, including several from like al-Qaeda and such. And al-Baghdadi was was one of these. He was arrested by U.S. forces in 2004 um, because he was, he was visiting the, the home of a, an old friend of his who was on the American Most Wanted list at the time, and they studied together. And so he kind of got detained in with his friend as a civilian in, internee. And you will hear some people talk about him as uh, this is the time when he was radicalized, when he was in prison already that the U.S. was the ones that did this to them. and But the truth is, he was almost certainly radicalized long before any of that took place. As I talked about, he was known as kind of a religious scholar, even very young. One of the local mosques talked about him as having a quote-unquote spiritual gift. He would lead the other boys in like cleaning the mosques and you know, hosing down the carpets and, and those types of things. He was big into memorization and, and reciting the Islamic scriptures. So he was very, very religious early on, and this kind of started to spiral a little bit later as he became more and more radicalized. But truth be told, you started to see some of these, these flashes of radicalization, even going back into his teens. As I mentioned, he would publicly chastise uh, you know, his, some of the imams or his mentors, other students. And actually, by the time he got to Camp Buka in 2004, he was so radicalized that it was well known that he would lead attacks on other prisoners in the prison. Uh, I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, but there's this big divide between the Sunni and the Shia Muslims, which are two kind of denominations, and he's on the Sunni side. And so he was so radicalized that during his time in Bukha, he would incite and lead attacks against Shia prisoners using like metal shanks and things that they were able to create out of whatever was around them. And in fact, he encouraged so many attacks against Shia inmates that a lot of the Shia prisoners would ask to be reassigned, sent to other camps and these sorts of things because they were fearing for their lives from al-Baghdadi and his kind of followers. Now, despite all of this, he was still considered fairly low level. Uh, and actually, when it, he, he didn't actually get on the radar of like, Iraqi intelligence or anything until much later. But it was during this time in Buko where he creates some of the connections that will ultimately lead him to take over the group that later becomes the Islamic State of Iraq and, and Syria or the Levant, ISIS. Now, he was not in prison at Camp Buka for very long. He was there probably about a year, maybe a little bit less than a year. Ended up being released because, as, as I said, he was seen as kind of low level. Uh, despite his, his radicalization and some of the things that were taking place inside the prison, he wasn't really seen as a, a major operator. And so a couple of years after he ends up being released, he kind of emerges as the leader of a group at the time was just called the Islamic State of Iraq or ISI, uh, sometimes called Al-Qaeda in Iraq or AQI, which was basically at this, t at this point just another division of Al-Qaeda. And so he was announced as the leader of ISI in 2010. 
uh, when his his predecessor who had kind of passed away, he took over as the leader of ISI. And so he actually started to become quite responsible for a lot of large-scale attacks that took place during this time period as the, the head of ISI. But it wasn't really until 2013 that the group that we know as now know as ISIS really emerged. And this is in about, I think it was April of 2013, al-Baghdadi formally announced the creation of ISIL. He called these, well, obviously in Arabic, but the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. So ISIL. Now, when he did this, uh, he also separated himself from Al-Qaeda a little bit, and they really became kind of their own group. And actually by February of 2014, so less than a year after he announced the creation of this group, Al-Qaeda disavows any sort of relationship with them uh, for a variety of reasons. I think we talked about this when I did the ISIS episode a while back. but uh, So they become formally split in February of 2014. By June of that year, al-Baghdadi announces that ISIS is forming a worldwide caliphate, and he becomes, this is where he gets the, the formal title of caliph. And the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant just becomes known as the Islamic State, IS. They drop the Iraq and the Levant because they obviously have now worldwide aspirations. Now, Baghdadi himself, as I mentioned, was fairly radicalized quite early on, uh, long before he actually emerged as any sort of leader. He was known for his brutality and violence. One of the reasons Al-Qaeda disavows relationships with them is because of just how violent ISIS ultimately becomes. They do things like crucifixion, which hadn't been seen in that region for quite a while. He gets involved into that. Uh, he gets involved in sex slavery. Uh, he's well known for maintaining his own personal sex slaves, who he would like rape repeatedly. One of his hostages that he claimed as one of, he called her his, his wife, but essentially a sex slave was a, a hostage named Kayla Mueller. Uh, and she actually is the one that the mission to take him down in the end, they actually named it after her uh, in, in her memory. But he was very well known for this. And some of the other brutal things that you hear about him are you know, burning people alive in oil, setting them on fire uh, while they're still alive, uh, hangings, mutilations, all kinds of, of just terrible, terrible things. And so he's known for his brutality, even among other terrorists. He is quite well known for his brutality. And obviously his organization became very well known for that as well with the beheadings and things that took place under ISIS rule when they controlled large parts of Iraq and, and uh, that region. Now, Baghdadi was designated as a terrorist by the U.S. Department of State personally, so not just the organization, but he himself was named as a, uh, I believe the title was a specially designated global terrorist. Uh, and so he was, or I, sh I should say he became a top target of the U.S., but also of the world in the war against ISIS. And it took us quite a while to track him down because he had kept such a low profile. A lot of people didn't know where he was, and he managed to hide for quite a few years. And because of this, there were reports that would come out every so often about him being wounded but escaping. There were actually false reports that he had been killed multiple, on multiple occasions, all of which ended up proving false until most recently. And it wasn't really until this most recent attack uh, that just took place on October 26th, so just a few days back, by the Delta Force. The, it's a U.S. elite special operations team on, in the U.S. Army. Managed to to get to him and hunt him down and kill him. Or I should say, he actually, they, they cornered him and he ended up killing himself, detonating a suicide vest that he was wearing, which actually ended up killing uh, three young children that he was using as human shields as well. Uh, and so he was 
just recently killed in the province of, of Idlib, which is a province in Syria. Now, this is actually a pretty interesting tidbit, the location in Idlib, because Idlib is, is kind of deep in what you might consider to be enemy territory. The, the dominant group that kind of runs Idlib is not ISIS anymore. They're not dominant anywhere, but it's actually a group that's kind of an affiliate of Al-Qaeda. And as I said, Al-Qaeda disavowed ISIS back in 2013 and 14. And so because of that, you know, Baghdadi has not been really seen as someone that they're willing to to harbor and protect. And so the, for him to kind of seek refuge among people who probably would rather see him dead anyway, I think says a lot about the support that he's lost over the years, particularly over the last year or so, uh, because the places where he has, like, say, popular support are just incapable of providing him any sort of safety or security. Now, after the commercial break, I'll get into kind of what this might mean for the war on terrorism, for ISIS, for the United States, for everything else kind of going forward. But if you're interested in really learning more about ISIS itself, I would recommend go back and listen to the old episode that I did on this. You can also find an old, uh, I think it was 2014 article that Graham Wood wrote in The Atlantic that was probably one of the most researched portraits of ISIS that exists and kind of where it came from. But before we move on after the commercial break, I do just want to kind of close out this part by by saying that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is probably one of the most violent, uh, genocidal, and probably one of the most evil leaders the world has seen in quite a while. He was a, a murderer, a torturer, a rapist, uh, as I said, led genocides against multiple different people groups. And he was really at, at his core, as I said, I don't think there's a better word to describe him than evil. And so while, as we'll talk about after the break, this doesn't necessarily mean ISIS is going away anytime soon. I do think we can safely say that the world is a safer, safer place without this man in, in it. Uh, but with that, I think we're going to go ahead and jump to the commercial break. And then afterwards, we'll talk about the impact that this uh, death has on the world. So stick with me through a short commercial here, and I'll be back with you on the other side. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for sticking with me through that commercial break. Uh, let's go ahead and just jump right back in. I'm not going to waste any time. Uh, so before the break, we were talking about al-Baghdadi, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, the famed ISIS leader who was recently killed just last week. And so I want to touch on the rest of the episode, kind of talk about what this means for ISIS going forward, what this means for the war on terror for the United States. Uh, for the world just in general and kind of what the impact of his death will be going forward uh, but before we get into that i do want to talk a little bit about the raid itself too what actually led to them getting him because it was obviously many years in the making and back in the the summer of this year there were two people that were arrested that actually helped the cia kind of narrow down his location uh, first was one of al-Baghdadi's couriers, and then also one of his wives was captured. And so both of these people provided details to the CIA as well as to other intel organizations that they were able to combine with other intelligence gathered from other places that allowed the CIA to kind of narrow down where he was, uh, particularly to the, the province of Idlib, and even all the way down to the specific compound where they believed he was staying. And so this was, again, just this past summer, so it's been a few months, and the compound where he was, where they found him, was a very dangerous place to go into because it was one that included a lot of children. Uh, so he, he used children as human shields 
And so all of that meant they had to wait for kind of the right time to go in when they were able to do it with the minimal casualties and to protect the civilians that were there. Uh, beyond that as well, though, the compound was actually in both Syrian and Russian airspace, or at least to get to it, we had to go through both of them. Uh, so this was something that took some strategic planning, and this is why they waited so long to get him. But one of the big news stories that took place shortly before we got him was uh, Turkey's invasion into Syria. We, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode. We were talking about the Kurds and whether or not we'd really abandoned them there. But America pulling out and pulling in the U.S. forces out of this area and then Turkey and going in, uh, in into Syria and going after some of the Kurdish strongholds there, this actually probably rushed some of the the mission forward. Uh, and so when we did go in, it was a little bit ahead of schedule where they were thinking everything kind of had to be rushed because America was kind of losing some of its visibility in the area at the time. And so basically what happened with this operation is the Army Delta Force, as I mentioned, their A squadron, went in to this, this compound and ultimately ended up chasing al-Baghdadi into a, a tunnel. And essentially what happened is, is this tunnel was a dead end. Essentially, he got trapped at the end of this tunnel with dogs bearing down on him, Delta Force bearing down on him. And he was wearing a, an explosive vest, basically a, a bomb vest. And he ignited the, the vest and killed himself, uh, as well as three children that he was using as human shields, essentially child shields. And so in this raid as well, a high number, although they haven't listed the exact number yet, a high number of ISIS fighters were also killed. Uh, two women who were there also wearing suicide vests were taken out. And uh, then obviously Baghdadi and the situation with the, with the three unfortunate children uh, that were tragically killed by his blast as well. Now, 11 other children were saved during this. They were probably either related to Baghdadi or Baghdadi's children himself. They were uninjured and were able to be removed from the situation safely. But Baghdadi basically spent his last moments fearfully running down a tunnel in you know complete terror, and he died as a coward, running and crying and whimpering. Uh, so this is something that it was obviously a really huge deal. Now, the body itself would have been completely mutilated by the blast, and the tunnel would have caved in on top of it uh, because of the, the explosive blast, but they were able to do DNA testing to prove that it was him and give a positive ID. Now, uh, what, the, what does this mean going forward? So at least in the, the short term, this is a huge blow to ISIS, obviously. The death of Baghdadi leaves the terrorist organization without any sort of obvious successor. It is true that several days later, they did announce a new successor, uh, a man by the name of Abu Ibrahim Hashimi al-Qurayshi. But this is actually a name that is not known to anybody in the intelligence community. Um, so nobody really knows who this is. Now, that could mean a couple different things. It could mean this is a no-name of somebody who was just very low level, got promoted. It's possible. Seems unlikely they would go that route uh, just because you know, if you have a no-name, it's going to be hard to rally people behind it, rally fighters behind it, and recruit. The more likely scenario is that this is the name of somebody who is higher up in the organization, and they changed their name, essentially. They assumed a new name along with their new title. Uh, the thought is it might be one of their figures, a man by the name of Haj Abdullah, uh, but it could be a, a variety of different things, uh, a variety of different people we don't really know. So that kind of remains to be seen. But either way, it is pretty clear that this successor is uh, kind of unexpected and uh, they don't have kind of a true line of succession in place. The fact that it took them several days at all to announce one is also very, very curious. 
probably a mixture of not having somebody in line already, but also the fact that in a separate raid around the same time, we actually took out their main spokesperson. So they needed to get somebody new for that as well. So what this means is that by, by taking Baghdadi off the, the battlefield, the U.S. has pretty much, in the short term, neutered a pretty major threat. And because he was self-proclaimed as the, the caliph, publicly self-proclaimed as the caliph, this meant that he, his followers saw him as the kind of supreme leader, both on the political front, but also in the religious front of all Muslims around the world. Now, obviously, most Muslims don't see him that way, but his followers did. And so this means it's a pretty major blow to their psyche, as well as to the organization. Now, long term, it gets a little bit more murky, because obviously, groups like this have frequently lost leaders. We have, we lost Zarqawi. Uh, he was killed. Obviously, Osama bin Laden was killed during the Obama administration. Al-Qaeda still exists. ISIS is going to still exist. And so it's it's not likely that ISIS is going to fall apart. The fight against ISIS is not over. Now, leadership does matter, and cutting off the head of a snake like this does matter. But to use a, um, a phrase from the comic book evil group Hydra, and you cut off one head, you know, another grows. I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. But essentially what it means is that the real meat of an organization is not in the leadership, but in the jihadis kind of down the line. And so while removing the group's head will have a significant effect on its functioning in the short term, it is important to know this is, this is not in the threat from ISIS. Uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done uh, to continue to to close up ISIS. This war is not over by far. This is not the end of ISIS. It's, it's really a, a huge symbolic victory. It's an operational victory. It's a, a morale booster. But this is, this is not mission accomplished. And what we know is that even though Baghdadi is now dead, there are still thousands and thousands of ISIS members that are still out there existing. Uh, actually, if you go back to August, I think it was the last major Pentagon report that came out, said there were still something like 15,000 ISIS members across Iraq and Syria uh, with financial holdings across the Middle East, but also even in, in Africa, Central Africa and Libya. Uh, they have followers in Europe, followers here in the United States, although those are very small numbers. And so the group itself is still quite large. But without a leader, we are going to see them flounder a little bit, at least at first. Now, one thing that we're going to have to keep a very close eye on, and I touched on this last week with the, the Kurds and what's happening there, but the, the conflict in Syria is going to have a fairly major role on this terrorist organization. It kind of remains to be seen what that impact is going to be. But essentially, there are several places where there are Kurdish kind of detention centers that have been holding captured ISIS fighters. And when Turkey entered into northern Syria and started to attack the Kurds, it's estimated that 100 or more ISIS prisoners have escaped. And so it is quite likely that this conflict in Syria will have more and more of an impact on the fight on ISIS as well. But long story short here, I mean, we, we will see a measurable impact on the effectiveness of this terrorist organization. I think that is, uh, that's very clear. I, that's actually a paraphrase of a quote from Mike Pence that I think is, is really uh, very accurate. There is going to be some sort of impact, but it is not the end all of the organization. This is not mission accomplished. And they are still going to be continuing to fight. And we've seen this over and over again with, I mean, let's look back at Al-Qaeda for a minute. When Al-Qaeda lost Osama bin Laden, they were seriously knocked back. Nobody debates that. Nobody doubts that. But there is still an Al-Qaeda that exists. They have changed their hierarchy. They have changed their structure. They actually operate a little bit more of kind of like a franchise model with 
multiple different Al-Qaeda franchises that kind of operate semi-autonomously as opposed to being one strong organization. So they've kind of revamped what they look like hierarchically, but they still exist. They are strong uh, as well. Maybe not as strong as they used to be, but they are still quite strong, powerful in that region. And so you can't expect ISIS to just dissolve. And in fact, what we probably will expect to see them do is take a step back for the moment and kind of reconstitute what their organization looks like, kind of rededicate themselves, but also kind of reorganize what their hierarchy looks like. So they may come back with a different leader, obviously. They may end up changing their name to try to distance themselves a little bit from Baghdadi and, and respect what he had built. But the ideology is going to still be there the ambitions and goals will still be there and the group itself will still exist and still be a threat long term how long that's going to take it's hard to know right it's going to remain to be seen really just how baghdadi's death ultimately does end up affecting the islamic state but we have seen plenty of other terrorist organizations survive the deaths of their leaders so we cannot expect isis to ultimately disappear here now there's a kind of a political element to this i wanted to touch on for a few minutes and this is the idea that Trump didn't inform a lot of the Congress members of this raid ahead of time. And this has received some criticism. The president said he informed a few members of Congress, which included Lindsey Graham, who's on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Richard Burr, who's on the Senate Intelligence Committee, but did not include some several key Democratic figures in Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, etc. Adam Schiff would be another one. And so there's there's some question here as to whether or not that he should have informed them, right? This is obviously a huge deal. It was a success. But several of the Democrats, including Pelosi and Schiff in particular, have criticized Trump for not informing them ahead of time. I forget who said it, but essentially what happened, or what their argument was, you know, if something had gone wrong, particularly going into Russian airspace and Syrian airspace, Trump could have at least relied back on saying, hey, I talked to Congress about it. They approved this as well. It wasn't just me. And it could have kind of spread the blame around a little bit more, essentially. They didn't say it in that in those words, but that's essentially what they're getting at. Now, I think this is probably, this is again, just my personal beliefs. So take it with a grain of salt. But I think this is being a little bit overblown here. These types of, of raids are so crucial that and there's no leak about them that I don't particularly blame anybody in government, whether it was Trump now or Obama with uh, Osama bin Laden, I don't really blame either one of them for not wanting to tell too many people. It's a risky business. The more people that know, the more chance there is of something slipping out. I'm not trying to suggest that any any of these Democrats would have done it intentionally. I'm sure you know Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi would have you know, been you know, very secretive and understood the the risk that was going on here. But simply, the more people that know, the greater chance there is for any sort of incidental slip up. And again, not intentional ones, maybe even subconsciously something slips out. But I don't particularly blame Trump for not wanting to spread that, uh, particularly given Schiff's actions lately with the, the probe into Russia and some of the corruption elements that he claims exist there. I kind of get it. But at the same time, like there is a line of criticism that I think is at least valid to be considered here that the president should have told Congress. I'll, I'll give you a shift's uh, comments here. 
uh, his exact quote. He said, had this escalated, had something gone wrong, had we gotten into a firefight with the Russians, it's to the administration's advantage to be able to say, we informed Congress we were going in, they were aware of the risks. We at least gave them the chance to provide feedback. But that wasn't done here, and I think that's a mistake. So that's, that's Schiff's um, comments. And I kind of agree with him. I, I don't want to go too far down that road, because again, I understand why Trump didn't. But there is an argument to be made that if something had gone wrong here, the more people that had the chance to give feedback and, imp and uh, input on this, the better it would have looked in the long run. And I think Trump is bailed out a little bit here by the fact that it was successful. And obviously that's that's a great thing. We should always all celebrate that. But it was also a huge risky maneuver that he deserves credit for you know, saying yes to. It was a, a brave decision that he made to send people in. And it was obviously the correct one and a successful one. But if something had gone wrong, you could totally see why you might want to have more people in on the decision and more input there. Uh, the struggle will continue on, but I, there is an element of justice that was doled out here for people like Kayla Mueller, uh, James Foley, uh, and, some, and, and many, many others, Kurdish, Iraqi, Syrian, innocent people, women, children, all kinds of people who were victims of this horrific regime. There is an element of justice that was doled out that I think I hesitate to use the word celebrated, but I do think this is something that we can find solace in and uh, enjoy in the moment, knowing that a, a one of the most evil men on the planet is is no longer on it. Obviously, it kind of remains to be seen what where we're going to go from here. The move to take Trump troops out of Syria may end up being impacted by this. There's already some reports that some of those troops may not be leaving as quickly as we thought, or maybe moving to other locations. Those are just rumors. Don't count too heavily on them, but I've heard a few rumors along those lines. And of course, it remains to be seen what's going to happen to the terrorist group itself, to ISIS, and to the other enemies of ISIS in that region that have been allies of ours, but maybe even enemies in other in other realms like, say, uh, Russia, the Syrian regime. Both of those are anti-ISIS, but we have not really been on their you know best side recently. Uh, the Kurds are another group that have been huge huge supporters of this. And in fact, we probably used a lot of their intel in this raid as well, and they deserve credit for that. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and I think close things down. Uh, I hope that was really interesting for you guys. Uh, Al-Baghdadi and ISIS is a, a fascinating organization, uh, one that is one of the most violent and brutal that we've seen on this earth in a long time, uh, probably rivaling some of the, the ancient groups that you know, existed long, long ago. And I, I think this is a day of celebration. Again, I hesitate to use the word celebrate, but you know what I mean. As a really important victory for the United States and for the West, for anybody who sees ISIS as a threat. But with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and shut things down. Uh, if you are at all interested in getting in contact with me, I'd be happy to talk with you more about this or any other topic. You can find me on Twitter. My handle there is Justin R underscore Kinney. That's K-I-N-N-E-Y. Uh, please go find me on there. Hit that follow button and subscribe. I'd be happy to, to chat with you about this or anything else. Or if you even have, you know, ideas for future topics you want me to discuss on, on this podcast, whether it's a current event or some sort of political theory topic or really anything else in this realm. Now, if you're not a Twitter person, you prefer to contact me on Facebook. The best way to do that is through my author page, J. Robert Kinney. Uh, I write fiction novels. I have two novels that have been published and a third one that's on its way right now. I'm kind of probably about two, two thirds of the way through that. So please 
hit that subscribe button on the J. Robert Kinney page on Facebook, and you can contact me about my books or about the podcast in any way you want uh, as well, any topic there. Now, if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast, advertising on the podcast, anything in that realm, you can always check out my Patreon account, which I have online, or you can just contact me directly through one of the other two ways, and I will be happy to chat with you more about that as well. Uh, But with that, I think I am done for the week. Thanks so much for sticking with me on this kind of special episode. It was a a big news story, one that I thought really needed to be talked about. So uh, thanks so much for tuning in, and I will be back with you guys next week here on Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. (laughs) 